Amen. Thank you, Jason and band. Justin, hang on. Show this guitar. Let me see this. Look at this guitar. This, this guitar, Justin built this with the assistance of his two young boys. How old are your boys now? They're seven and four. Seven and four. Four and two. Four and two when they made it. And on the headstock, it says, Dada Tar? Question mark. Because his boys would ask him, Dada Tar? You play guitar? Let's play guitar. I love it. The Dada Tar. They, they painted it and built it. I just love that. We are a family of faith here. And that, that just shows what a family we are right there in, in a single object lesson, I think. But grateful to have Jason back with us today. Jason is an engaged man now. Congratulations. He used to lead our midweek service on Wednesday night, and he was dating this, this young lady from Belmont uh, named Hannah, and now they're engaged, getting married next spring. So exciting times there. I'm so grateful to be in this town that we live in. There's so much talent and just grateful. People have been asking uh, Logan Newton. They, they keep saying, I didn't know you played bass, and his answer to everyone that I've heard him talk to is, I don't. Uh, it's just He's faking it, but he does a great job faking it. It sounded great today. I thought, thank you. Logan, you nailed it. Um, Logan Rogers informed us that the youth homepage here at Woodmont for, for a decade, maybe, was Logan's face um, on stage playing guitar as a teenager and uh, emoting, as, as Logan put it. So uh, I, I didn't get to see that picture, but I, I wish I had. Uh, I'm glad to be in this family of faith. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning um, as we continue to walk through the gospel of John, this powerful passage looking at the famous last words of Jesus Christ, the most important last words of all time, the words that he shared with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and arrested and eventually crucified the next day. You know, as a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for 12 years, and I would do little gimmicky things like with our graduates uh, when they would, you know, get towards the end of their high school career, I would have them fill out a little survey, and I would ask them things in the survey like, what's your favorite scripture reference? What's been a highlight for you in your youth ministry experience? And one of the things I would ask them is, what's a piece of advice that you learned from your parents. And I'll never forget what, um, I think it was Kate Turch, remember Kate, uh, her, her dad was an engineer, and he was a very exacting man, if you know what I mean. Um, we got some engineers, Braden had his pen, I noticed, in his pocket square in his jacket. He's an engineer back there, Garney's an engineer, he's a very exact person. Um, for, for those of you who are engineers, you know what I'm talking about, but Jeff Turch had told his daughter Kate and his other three children over and over again, under promise, over deliver. Under promise, over deliver. He kept saying that to his kids, and, and it took. His kids were, were brilliant. They did really well, but I, I always remember that line because it, it reminds me of Jeff and Kate. You know, it's a, it's a character flaw for a person to make promises that they're not capable of fulfilling, right? It's, it's not, it's not a, a good a character example for someone to constantly be saying, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do this, and then they, they don't fulfill those obligations that they themselves have made. It reminds me of the line in, in Top Gun, remember when, when young Maverick is in trouble once again, and his commanding officer chews him out, the, the, he gets in his face and he says, son, your body's writing checks, your, no, your ego's writing checks, your body can't cash, remember that? Your ego's writing checks, your body can't cash. He's over-promising. 
and under delivering. Well, in our text today, we're gonna see some promises that Jesus makes. And I want us to consider, are these promises true? Is Jesus over-promising as he makes these bold claims that we're going to see today? Is Jesus capable of delivering on these promises that he makes in John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33? Are these promises still true for us today? We sang a song with, with Brad on Wednesday night at midweek called Yes and Amen. This was based on 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God in Christ are yes and in Christ, amen, to the glory of God through us. Do you believe that? Do I believe it? That all God's promises are ultimately and totally and perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and that he is faithful to bring them to completion. Let's think about that as I read our text for today. It's the end of the farewell discourse. It really is the actual last words that Jesus has for his disciples because at the end of this, chapter 17, it's the, the high priestly prayer, the prayer that Jesus is talking to his father in, in the next chapter. So these are the last words before Jesus is arrested. Will you stand in honor of God's word if you're able to this morning? As I read our text, John 16, 16 through 33. Hear now the word of the Lord. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you, will, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I've come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to, to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? 
Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, when Jesus came to earth, when he arrived here, he, he limited himself physically. He gave up certain attributes of God the Father. He, he no longer was omnipresent. He chose to reveal himself in one specific location and in one place. He went from town to town throughout the, the region of Palestine and, and Judea, the ancient Near East. But one thing he did not give up is his omniscience. He continued to know everything. He knew what was in the hearts of the people around him, including his disciples, as they are wondering and wrestling and struggling with these things that he's saying. He understands exactly what they're thinking. Jesus also knows exactly how this whole situation is going to end up. He knows that within 12 hours of this meal, he's going to be hung on a cross to die. He knows that he's going to rise again, and he knows that he is eventually going to ascend back to the Father, leaving his disciples to carry on this fledgling new movement called the church. So there's an urgency to his words here, because he knows that his time on earth is short. So he's, he's, he's saying these things with great urgency to his disciples. There's other places in John where that urgency, due to his omniscience, is revealed. Look at John 12, verse 35. It'll be on the screen, or you can look in your Bibles. John, John 12, 35. Jesus is talking to a crowd of Jews and Gentiles, and he says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons and daughters of the light. We need to understand what's at stake here. Jesus is, is, is saying this is really life and death, urgent. This matters while God's ultimate revelation is upon you. While God in the flesh is coming to rescue you and dwell in your midst, believe in him. Jesus is offering them, he's offering us life. He's offering us life to the fullest. He's offering the true abundant life, and we therefore have a decision to make. Will we believe in him? Will we trust in his promises while we have the opportunity or will we reject him? And let's be clear, to, to not make a decision about Jesus is to make a decision about Jesus. Either he's Lord of all and master, or he isn't, and he's rejected. But people are confused whenever Jesus tries to get them to understand the urgency of the situation. Back in John 3, he tried to explain it to Nicodemus. He didn't get it. And then the Jewish authorities didn't understand what he was talking about either with this urgency. And now his disciples, once again, are confused. So Jesus tells them in, in verse 16 that it's going to be very dark soon. Things are going to get really rough. They're not going to see him 
any longer. He's going to be betrayed into the hands of a hostile authority that wants to squash this new movement. He's going to be wrongly accused and then wrongly convicted and wrongly sentenced to die. He's going to be led out of the city of Jerusalem like a sheep to the slaughter and up to a hill called Golgotha. And the angel warriors are not going to swoop in and stop the whole thing. He's going to be successfully killed on a cross. And so it's not going to be the end, though. That's what he tells the disciples. That's not going to be the end. Yes, it's going to be really dark. It's going to be very scary. The disciples don't even go. They just bail and hide in the city while it's the ladies who stayed. Remember that? But this is why he tells them, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. Just because he's in the tomb doesn't mean that's the end of the story. That's the first promise that Jesus makes in this great passage. Yes, I'm going to die, but I'm coming back. In his grace, in his mercy, in his compassion, he's giving his beloved disciples a heads up. He's giving them a promise of hope. These 11 men who he's done life with for the last three years, who have left everything to follow him as homeless wanderers from village to village. He loves them dearly. He calls them friends now. And he gives them this beautiful promise of hope. I'm coming back. The resurrection of Jesus is the basis for our hope. It's the ultimate promise fulfilled. The the resurrection of Christ means that death doesn't have the last word. It means that death is is now powerless over us. It means that death has lost its sting. We can mock death like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 and say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The reason that we can say that all God's promises are answered, yes and amen. Amen means truly, truly, verily, verily, the King James says. The reason that all those promises are yes and true is because God raised Jesus from the dead. We all go through hard times in life. It's true. None of us are spared from tribulation. Jesus says in verse 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's only a matter of time. If you haven't experienced real trials yet, it's coming. None of us get a pass from pain None of us get a pass from suffering, but the promise of God in this passage is that God does not waste our pain. God does something with it. You know, very soon Jesus' disciples would would realize the sad and dark truth that their Savior had been crucified and killed. This man who they've pledged everything to has been successfully destroyed and laid in a tomb. All hope would seem lost, but it's always darkest before the dawn, right? Joy comes in the morning. We can now, as God's people, walk through the difficult times of life with a different perspective on suffering than the world around us has. We can understand pain and trial and tribulation and suffering in a whole different way 
than the world does because we know something that the world doesn't know. We know that God doesn't waste pain, but he uses it. He redeems it. He transforms it and he works through it. You know, God's in the business full time, 24 seven of working good out of bad, of bringing beauty out of ashes. That's what he does. That's his business. It's called redemption. That's his, that's his job. And he does it 24 seven, never stops redeeming and working good out of bad. Verse 20 here says, your sorrow will turn into joy. And Jesus uses the illustration of childbirth. He says, when a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hours come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I'll be honest, I was not prepared for the uh, physical, excruciating uh, process of childbirth. I feel like someone should have warned me. All my friends who already had babies, I was like, you could have given me a heads up. I was... I thought, you know, I had a picture in my head of me just holding Morgan's hand and cheering her on. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite like that. Morgan labored with Jude for over four hours. I don't think that's like standard medical practice. I think two is usually they just say, we're, we're doing something else. But they let her go for four hours. And at one point, I won't go into detail about which point it was, but at one point during that labor, I went completely pale in the face. I hadn't eaten anything. We went in the hospital like two in the morning, and this was the next day. And I gave the nurse a look that terrified her because she'd seen it before. And she sternly advised me to sit down and to drink a Coke, uh, have some, some sugar, because I was going to be on the floor soon. And she had seen that before and didn't want that to happen again to me. But once that perfect little baby was here, it was the proudest moment of my life. And I didn't really have a lot to do with it. It was so proud, though. And this is a picture my brother-in-law, as a photographer, took of me coming down the hallway to tell everybody who's in the waiting room, all of our family who was waiting on the birth of our first child, here I am coming down, yeah, yeah. Just pure pride. I mean, I've never felt more proud and uh in that moment, to tell my family that my son had been born. And then here's a picture of me the next day holding our, our baby, Jude, for the first time. It wasn't the first time I held him, but for the, the first day of his life. And just the joy and the pride on my face there. You can't manufacture that kind of joy and pride. You know, the, the trauma of childbirth. And yes, I understand that Jesus was referring to the trauma of the mother, and, and I, I guess it was, you know, hard for Morgan too, apparently, but <laughs> it's hard for me too. <laughs> the trauma of childbirth for both of us gave way eventually to unbelievable, unspeakable joy. And, and many commentators point out in this passage that what Jesus is talking about is not replacing our sorrow with joy. He's talking about bringing joy out of sorrow. He's talking about transforming pain and suffering into something beautiful. It's not just that a woman suddenly forgets how painful childbirth was, but it's worth it. 
It's worth every bit of it. And she'd do it again a hundred times for that child to be brought into the world. The process of adoption, I, I think, is in many ways just as traumatic as childbirth. The expense that, that adoption costs, the emotional trauma of, of having a child and not having a child, not knowing where you stand legally, all those trials that adoptive families go through. But then once that judge hits that gavel and that child becomes a part of your family for life, it's such a beautiful moment and they would do it all again a hundred times for that child to be a part of their family. The sorrow, the suffering, the pain gives way to joy. Jesus goes on to explain that this joy that he brings out of sorrow is not dependent on our circumstances around us. It's a gift of grace from above. Look at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. When I was in college, Morgan and I had a friend who uh, grew up in a church not unlike this one uh, in the deep south, and she had these little Christianisms that she would say uh, when something was good or she was happy. She'd say, PTL, PTL, y'all, which of course stands for praise the Lord. Yeah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, PTL, PTL. And she would also say when things were going poorly, she would say, uh-uh, Satan, not today. You're not going to steal my joy. Not going to steal my joy today, devil. She would say that, and she meant it as a person of deep faith. Does your joy depend on what's going on around you, or is it the gracious gift of God in Christ Jesus imputed to you? The kind of joy that we receive from knowing that Christ has conquered the grave, just as we sang a minute ago, that he rules over this world, that he has overcome every evil element in this world, gives us a joy that, as one commentator said, a joy the angels cannot give and evils cannot take. Yes, that joy may only come out of the ashes of sorrow, out of the ashes of suffering, out of a hard, dark season but when it shows up, it is a deep-rooted, abiding kind of present joy no matter what else is happening in the world around us. And that joy is there for the asking. It's a matter of wanting that joy and asking the one whom alone is capable of giving that joy. Look at verse 23. In that day, Jesus says, you'll ask nothing of me. This is like Psalm 23, nothing shall I want. When we see Jesus, we won't ask him for anything. But in the meantime, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, is what he says there. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, this is not a magic formula. A lot of prosperity gospel preachers, you know, on TV, I guess I kind of am a TV preacher, but um, not like that. But they, they will say, you know, ask for it in Jesus' name. I want that new Mercedes in Jesus' name. I name it and claim it. It's mine. I said in Jesus' name, so it's magic. I have a new Mercedes. It, it doesn't work that way. This is not a formula that Jesus is giving us. Christianity is not magic, and it's certainly not about prosperity in worldly terms. It's so much better than that. 
praying in Jesus' name means praying in accordance with who Jesus is. In the first century in, in Palestine region, a person's name was associated with who that person was. It was their identity. It had to do with their nature, their essence of their very being. So to pray in accordance with Jesus' name is to align our prayers with who Jesus is. It's to ask for the same things that Jesus asked for, to align our heart's desire with Jesus' heart and his desires. It means to deeply abide in Christ as we pray until we are so united with him that we are in full agreement with Jesus and his purposes and his heart, and we are fully submitted to his will over our will so that we can find true joy. Jesus says that your joy may be full. That kind of prayer leads to full, abundant joy. The kind of joy that abides regardless of circumstances. The kind of joy that only comes through union with Jesus Christ himself and living into his perfect and pleasing will for our lives and for our community and for the world. As Christians, we believe that God's ways are best, that God's ways, as prescribed in this book, lead to flourishing and lead to thriving. How do we align ourselves with God's ways then? Well, it's not just a how-to manual. We don't just read the book. We pray in Jesus' name. That's how we live into God's ways best when we are guided into the way of true flourishing, when we are in tune with Christ and his purposes for redeeming this fallen world. May we all learn to pray like that. We receive that joy through prayer, yes, but Jesus also gives us other factors that bring us joy. Look at verse 26. And that day you'll ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. You don't need me anymore to be your mediator. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. When you're united to Christ, you have direct access to God the Father. What, a, what an amazingly powerful and beautiful thing. We can know this deep joy because the holy God, the sovereign God of all creation, the one who spoke everything into existence, loves us like a good, good father loves his beloved children. If we could just grasp that reality, it would change us from the inside out. There was a famous pastor in the middle of the 20th century in California named Ray Stedman. When he was about 60, he, he said this in a sermon, just little bits of wisdom and advice that he would give. He said this, there's a threefold technique to getting up in the morning. Try this tomorrow. First, we stretch. That gets the body going. Then, smile. That puts the soul in the right attitude so that we don't start the day grumbling. Isaiah started the day grumbling this morning, didn't he, kids? Man, three major. And third, say, God loves me because that sets the spirit right. You are reminding yourself of your identity in that way. 
And body, soul, and spirit, you are starting the day right. Stretch, smile, say God loves me. It's pretty good, isn't it? We need to remind ourselves each and every day that our true identity as God's people, as God's children, is wrapped up in the reality that God so loved us, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life and not perish. That's, that's the beauty and truth of who we are in Christ. That truth brings us abiding joy, even though our world may be crumbling around us. Finally, Jesus shows that joy is tied to belief in him. Look at verse 28. He, he clearly lays it out now for his poor disciples. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And the disciples get real excited. Verse 29, they say, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. They're pretty proud of themselves, you know, like a kid who answers the question right in class. Yeah, nailed it. But they, they blame their lack of prior understanding on Jesus using figurative language. So now they're saying, thank you, finally. Some plain English here, or, or you know, they're Aramaic, I guess he was speaking. We get it now. Thank you, Jesus. We know, now we know what you're saying. But their knowledge is really based on a shallow confidence. They don't really get it. So Jesus calls them out in verse 31. Oh, do you now believe? <laughs> what an important question for him to ask and for them to answer. You know, when Rachel and I meet with children who are, are ready to make a, a public profession of faith in Christ and ready to receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus uh, offers to them, we ask them a very similar question. We ask them, do you believe? Do you now believe in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is? That he's Lord and master and savior of your heart and your life forever? Do you believe? That's an important question for us to answer too. Because every one of us is betting our lives on something. We're, we're gambling our whole lives on something and the fruit of our lives shows what that ultimate foundation is for each one of us. Do we believe what Jesus has said? That our ultimate joy comes from the resurrection and in knowing him. Do we believe that our sorrow will be turned to joy ultimately? Do we believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Then Jesus gives us his last words before his farewell prayer, verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. I've said these things to you, that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. That's a bold claim, isn't it? For someone who's about to be arrested and crucified and laid in a tomb to say that they have conquered, to say that they have won, that they're the victor, that'd be like the Titans saying in the third quarter, we got this, it's, we're gonna win this thing on Thursday night. No way. Not a chance. 
Not with those refs especially. Gracious. <laughs> how could it be that Jesus makes this claim? When it appears he's defeated, how can he say he's won? Because he actually believes and knows that what he's saying is true. He actually believes in his heart of hearts that the disciples' sorrow would soon give way to joy. He actually believes that as they pray in his name, in accordance with who he is, that their joy would multiply and overflow into the lives of others in such a powerful way that the church would not be stopped, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He actually believed that the Father loved them as beloved children. It's all true. It's all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So the question is for us today, the same one that Jesus asked his disciples, do you now believe? If you do, then, then take heart, cheer up, smile. I get cynical every day, but our Lord and Savior has overcome whatever it is that you're going through. He has conquered it. You know, Satan would love to keep us just wallowing around in, in self-pity. Oh, poor me, I'm such a victim. I'm, my life is so hard for me. That's not how Christians live. We have so many beautiful examples of saints in this church. I was in the room when Jim Askey received a, a, a terminal diagnosis. And Carolyn and, and Richard and I began to weep. And, and Jim said, whoa, stop. This is not a sad thing. He said, take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. He didn't use those words. But he said, this is not a sad thing. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. He actually believed it. <laughs> the hospice worker said he never backed down from death's door. Even when he got right on the step of death, he was confident and smiling and bold because Jesus had conquered death. He never once feared it. When that diagnosis comes, I, I've, I've heard, I mean, from everyone, David Gregory, who got the diagnosis, from uh, Connie Bushy, who said, you know, don't put me on the prayer list. It's just breast cancer. <laughs> Connie, she said, this is, not a, this is not a sad thing. Jesus has overcome whatever it is. Never once were scared, never once backed down, knew that God was gonna use it and transform it and redeem it for his glory. And they, they went through those trials like Christians do, knowing that God had overcome whatever it is. And one day, Jesus is coming back and he's gonna finish the work that he began 2,000 years ago. He's gonna make every wrong right He's going to wipe away every tear. And that is our full Christian hope as we dwell with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word that clearly tells us who you are and who we are in Christ, that we are your beloved children. And God, we know that our Savior is a mighty mighty Savior who is mighty to save and who has conquered death, conquered and defeated the grave forever and ever so that death does not get the last word anymore. Cancer doesn't get the last word. Divorce doesn't get the last word. Addiction doesn't get the last word. God, we know that 
injustice is only a temporary thing, that you are coming to finish making all things new, and that in the end, our Savior will stand. God, we trust in your faithfulness. We trust that you are working behind the scenes that we can't see to redeem our broken world, to redeem our broken situations, to redeem our fallen circumstances that we find ourselves in. God, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you have overcome every evil aspect of this world. Help us to live victoriously. Help us to live confidently. Get us out of the pit of self-pity, of cynicism, of doubt, of anger. It's easy to read the paper, watch the news, God, and get angry and get cynical and jaded. Help us to walk out of here smiling in the confidence that you give us deep in our hearts through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. We're gonna stand and have a time of invitation now. We're gonna sing Build My Life. If you don't know it, I encourage you to listen to the words. It's such a beautiful promise about building our lives. We're all betting our lives on something. What is it that's the foundation of your life? Is it the rock of Jesus Christ or is it fleeting circumstances that change and bring sorrow? Maybe you're going through a time of really tough sorrow and suffering here today. Maybe you just wanna come pray with someone. I'm gonna ask Dewey, if you'll, come, if you'll come stand up here, Dewey, and Morgan, if you'll come stand over here as well. If you wanna pray with Dewey or, or, or Morgan, they'll be here to pray at the altar, or if you just wanna come kneel at the altar and pray, because maybe you just don't believe that God's gonna redeem your sorrow, that's okay. He can handle your doubt. Just bring it to the altar, bring it to him, and see what he does with it. He is faithful, he is true, he is good. I've seen it over and over again. There's unbelievable suffering and sorrow in this life and in this church. I've known people who've had children who have died way too young and the way that they walk through that. The whole grief share ministry that, that Jan's leading, it's just incredible to see how, Jan, if you'll come on up too, um, to hear Jan tell stories about that pain of losing her husband, but how the Lord has redeeming it. She still feels the pain, it never goes away, but out of the ashes comes joy, unbelievable joy. If you want that same kind of joy, maybe you've never experienced it. Maybe you want to accept Jesus Christ for the first time and profess faith in him publicly. Come forward today and talk to me about that. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont. Maybe you want to become a member of what God's doing here in this family of faith. Uh, I'd invite you to come forward and do that now. Whatever it is you need to do, let's stand and sing, Build My Life.